edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown on the application of Gibson and the Secretary of State for Justice. The citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 2. Now, the case that we are looking at today has its origins in 1999, where Gibson was sent to prison for 25 years for drug trafficking offences. Later on, in March 2000, a court also made a confiscation order to the effect that he must also pay around £5.4 million. This had to be paid within 12 months or Gibson would be sentenced to a further six years in jail. Later on in 2007, a receiver was appointed and managed to put together £12,500. This was followed by a further £12,500 and then another payment of £65,370. This was reflected in a proportional deduction to the six-year sentence. All fairly straightforward at this point, but the problems begin to arise when you consider that by this point the interest had pushed the amount that was owed up to £8.1 million. Thus the prison authorities worked out the deduction to the sentence based on the amount that was paid compared to the larger £8.1 million sum. If the sentence reduction had been worked out with the original £5.4 million figure, in mind, then Gibson would have been entitled to have another 11 days taken off the sentence. With that issue at stake, the judicial review made its way to the Supreme Court. The lead judgment was jointly handed down by Lords Reed and Hughes, and as they commenced their analysis, the legislation as it stands did not begin to look good for Gibson. In particular, Section 10 of the Drug Trafficking Act 1994 at the time the fine was imposed regards interest as part of that which is to be recovered under any confiscation order. Furthermore, if the growing interest pushes the amount owed into a higher bracket, then Section 10 also makes it explicitly clear that the Crown Court can adjust the prison term respectively. The other point to take from the legislation is that any order against the defendant to make a payment is to be treated as if it were a fine imposed by the Crown Court. This means that we have to look at the Powers of Criminal Courts Sentencing Act 2000, a statute that also treats fines imposed by Crown Courts the same as those imposed by magistrates. We are going around the houses a lot here to essentially equate a drug trafficking payment imposed on the defendant with a fine imposed by the Crown Court with a fine imposed by the Magistrates Court, but this is important as it is actually only the Magistrates Court Act 1980 that deals with both imprisonment for a failure to pay a fine, as well as reducing a term of imprisonment as a consequence of part payment. For the Supreme Court, this raised certain problems of interpretation, because in respect of Gibson's confiscation order, they were applying laws that were not truly designed for that purpose. In particular, there was confusion in the Court of Appeal about how part payments of fines would operate between the Crown Court and the Magistrates' Court, and so they had to read words into Section 79 of the Magistrates' Courts Act 1980. The justices disagreed with this approach and instead made reference to Section 139 of the Sentencing Act from 2000 that states the prison term that is proposed has to be agreed at the time that the fine is imposed. Thus, when it comes to deducting a proportion of the prison sentence in consequence of part payment, the Act also clearly states that this is based on the amount that was due at the time that the prison term was imposed, i.e. prior to any interest being accrued whatsoever. This interpretation also seems to fit better with much of the other associated legislation 
and even the magistrate's court rules. As part of their conclusion, Lords Reed and Hughes took the opportunity to slightly reprimand the Court of Appeal for their approach to reading words into the law in this particular instance. While this may generally be a suitable approach when it is necessary to uncover Parliament's intention, here the effect of reading into the statute would be to increase the period during which Gibson is not at liberty, and that cannot be justified even where the law exists in something of a grey area. Overall this is a good decision from the Supreme Court and they are quite right to set out a clear standard for statutory interpretation when doing so has the possibility to impact on a person's individual liberty. The actual difference of a few days in the context of a much longer sentence for Gibson will probably not make that much of a difference, but it is the principle that is important here. Last week we saw an instance of the Supreme Court operating against the personal liberties of the individual in a controversial decision involving police warrants. But here we have a clear indication that unless parliamentary language is explicitly clear, then the law should not be interpreted as working against the individual. There is a degree of inconsistency here, as in both cases the analysis of the law required the justices to view a number of different statutes in the context of various courts. As we move forward into 2018, let us hope that the justices take their cue from this case, rather than from Haralambus that we looked at last week. Well, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast. Thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Just a quick warning, I'm not going to be around next week. I am actually visiting a friend in the Netherlands, so I'm looking forward to that. But it means there won't be an episode next week, um, but there will be the week afterwards. So make sure that you keep tuned for that. Subscribe for more episodes and I'll see you soon. Bye.